I've been realizing that there's such a great need today for forgiveness. And as I've been pastoring and going different places, I realize that many people today are longing for peace in their hearts. But they can never have it unless they first have full and complete forgiveness for those who have hurt them in the past. I've heard it many times people say, you know, I want to forgive, but I just cannot. Or hear them say, you know, it's just too painful for me to even think about forgiveness. And they've hurt me so much in the gossip and the lies and my family and what my parents did I, and my children. I just have a hard time to forgive. And I felt it's such a great need in today's world for the power of forgiveness. In fact, in order to heal from our past wounds, we must first forgive. For forgiving others is critical to both our physical and emotional well-being. In fact, the people who don't forgive, sooner or later they become very bitter in life. And unforgiveness tears them apart. In fact, they're never truly set free from their abusers as everything in their lives, both consciously and unconsciously, revolves around those who have hurt them and abused them in their lives. You know, there's a true story of a woman who went to counseling. And as she went to see this counselor, she, in the first session, she was saying to the counselor about her mother. And she started talking about her mother. You know, my mother, she did this, and my mother did that. And my mother, um, this happened with my, me and my mother, and she was very bitter the next session, the same thing. You know, my mother did this and my, my mother did that and very angry and a lot of unforgiveness and bitterness in her heart. Then the next session, she goes, you know, my mom did this and my mom did that. And the next session, my mom did this and my mom did that. And finally, the counselor was kind of sick and tired and said, look, you, what you need to do is you need to go to your mother, you go to your mom and you know, in fact, just cut all ties and just tell her, I'm no longer going to see you if you need to stop this and, uh, unless you stop your action. In fact, you probably need to move far away because this bitterness is killing you. Not only your relationships and your life with those whom you love, but also your physical health. This is killing you, this unforgiveness. And you need to just get away from her and move far as away as possible you can from her. The lady was looking down and kind of looked up in shock and surprise at what he said. And she said this, Oh, I'm sorry. I guess I didn't tell you that my mom's been dead for five years. You see, unforgiveness is like a chain. It links you to those people who wounded and hurt you. And that person may not even be living anymore. That pain and the hurt they caused you is still like a chain of unforgiveness that links you to your past. And you may not consciously, you may be hurting those people who are innocent all around you by the abuse and pain and hurt that you receive from your past. And you're hurting those whom you love. And many times it's subconsciously you're actually hurting those whom you love the most. And that's why God wants us to break those chains and God wants us to set us free. What do you say, amen? amen? Because Jesus came to set the captives free and he wanted to set us free tonight. What do you say, amen? amen? So we're going to be studying forgiveness and that's the power of forgiveness. As we journey through forgiveness, may God give us a revelation of his forgiving love. Let us pray. Father, as your word is open, help us to understand it and may you speak. 
is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. How are we truly forgiven? Look as the Bible says here. The Bible says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, how many heard it from people saying, Look, God's not going to forgive you unless you forgive that person. How many have heard that before? Let me see hands. Am I the only one? Let me see your hands again. <laughs> okay, you guys seen that, heard that before, right? In other words, you have to forgive that person, right? You just need to because if you don't forgive that person, God's not going to what? Forgive you, right? You heard that before, right? Now, it may be a play on words in the beginning, but I want you to pay close attention as we go through this study, okay? Now, it's true from Matthew 6, verse 15 that God doesn't forgive us if we don't forgive, but I want you to notice that, in other words, you are not forgiven because you forgive others. Are you following me? In other words, God doesn't forgive you because you forgive someone else. Are you following me? Now, where in the world I get that? Matthew 6, verse 12 says, as we forgive, right? It says as. Notice what it says here in, in Inspiration from Christ's Object Lessons, page 251. And by the way, I love this theme this weekend, Christ our righteousness. What do you say, Amen. The Righteousness by Faith message has been dear to my heart for 20 years, and I love this message. So if you look at this, notice what it says here from Christ's Object Lessons. It's a parable. And it's talking about here, it says, we are not forgiven, what? Because we forgive, the Spirit of Prophecy says. But what? As we forgive. Now, when I first read this, I didn't understand what it was saying. It took me a long time to understand it. And so tonight, as we're going to go through this and go through a parable, I hope that it'll come to light and actually you see Christ's righteousness in a different way, God's character, love in a different way, and that will actually give you the power to forgive. So as we forgive others, God forgives us. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Let's see what the Bible has to say. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. In your Bibles, please. Galatians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. What does this mean? Ephesians 4, verse 32. The Bible says, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted. What does it say? Forgiving one another, even as what? God in Christ has what? Forgive you. In other words, God has only asked you to forgive others only because, even as, He has already forgiven you. What do you say? Amen? Amen? In other words, it doesn't start with you. Like, I need to forgive first, and because I forgive, God then next forgives me. Are you following me? God is saying, no, you're not the initiator. God is saying to us, I forgive you first, and because you experience God's forgiveness to you first, then and only then can you go out and give that same forgiveness you receive to others who have hurt you. What do you say? Amen? Amen. God's the initiator, and we are actually the ones who respond to His goodness. And that is what true forgiveness is really all about. And so if you look at the handout, again, it goes on the quotation in Christ's Object Lessons, and it says, We are not forgiven because we forgive, but as we forgive. And it goes on here, The ground of all forgiveness is found in the unmerited love of God. What do you say? Amen? But by our attitude toward others, we show whether we have made that love and that forgiveness our own. So, righteousness by faith is 
not us doing something first and God rewards us because we forgive, then God forgives us. No, God forgives us first and because He's freely given it to us by His love and grace, we respond to that and then we freely give to others. But whether we give it to others or not, even if we've gone through the process, whether we give it to others or not, is dependent upon whether we have really received it. If we really have that forgiveness toward others, then that proves we have received it and then our forgiveness is retained in our life. That's clear. Let me hear you say amen. Amen? But if we have not received that forgiveness of God, even though we say, God, please forgive me, and uh, we know that God forgives us, but if we haven't experienced it in our lives, it was just in our head, the greatest journey is the, you know, the 18 inches from the head to the heart, right? So if it's just in our head, an intellectual, cerebral religion right up here, it doesn't go to the heart, and then we don't forgive others, that's not forgiving others, it's just proof that we haven't truly experienced forgiveness in our hearts. If that's clear, let me hear you say amen. Amen? amen. So it's because that's clear, let's go on to our story here. Matthew chapter 18. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. So this is the parables. So this weekend I'm focusing on parables because Christ's Object Lessons was written by Ellen G. Wright in direct connection to the movement in the 1890s of Righteous My Faith, you know, with Jones and Wagner. So tonight we'll be looking at the parable of the king and his, his servant and on forgiveness. Matthew 18, verse 23, starting verse 23. Peter asked Jesus about forgiveness. And then what did Jesus reveal to him in this story? And what did Jesus share? Matthew chapter 18, verse 23 to 25, the Bible says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, his officers. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. So Jesus tells a story about a king. And this story, this king... Want to settle his accounts with all his servants, his, you know, his accountants, and all his officers. And one officer came up, and as he looked into the books, he found out that this officer had owed him 10,000 talents. So 10,000 talents was about 750,000 pounds, in this case, was gold. Now, in today's market, about $1,100 an ounce comes out to about $13 billion. It's a lot of money, right? How many could actually pay $13 billion back here? I was hoping to see a hand go up so I can be your friend here, but no, nobody raised their hand. $13 billion. Now, if you owe $13 billion, how many could actually earn enough, not that you have it, but earn enough all years of, of working to actually pay it back? No. So because this man couldn't pay back the $13 billion to his, his king, the law said that he had to sell everything the family had, including the family, the, the, the wife and the children, and even the person himself, and to be sold into slavery and make as much money possible and so that they could actually um, pay up the debt and move on. But what did this officer then do? Look at verse 26 in chapter 18. The Bible says, the servant there fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will what? Pay you how much? Oh. He was pleading for some type of mercy 
with this king. He fell down and you know, worshipped him. Now, first of all, could this officer pay back all that he owed? But in his mind, did he think that he could pay it all? Ah. So he couldn't do it, but in his mind, he felt that he could actually do it. The Bible says, we are saved by grace to faith and not of what? Yourselves is the gift of what? God, right? Not of works. As any man should boast, right? In other words, there's nothing we can do to earn or to gain God's blessings. But there are many people who think that they can earn or gain God's blessings by the things that they do. You see, this servant had become so accustomed to hearing the phrase, I scratch your back, what? You scratch my back. Or a favor for a favor, right? In other words, the culture at that time was like, look, I do something for you, right? Then don't forget me, right? You need to do something for me. Favor for a favor, right? Favor for a friend, I do something, you do something for me. You do something for me, then I got to do something for you, right? That's like the worldly thoughts of back then, and that's the worldly thoughts of even today that we're seeing here. And the people today do the same thing in church. They do God a favor and expect God to return a favor in return. Is that not true? In other words, if I do something, in other words, if I pay my tithe, God will bless me how? Financially, right? Have you heard that before? If I have good health because I go to church. I have a good job because I found the truth. If I do something good, God will then forgive me, right? But the Bible says that God sends His reign on the just and the what? Unjust. God's reign is His what? Blessings. In other words, God says in his word that God sends his reign, yes, on the good. And the natural law we do good is special extra blessings. We know that. But guess what? God also sends his blessings even upon the wicked. What a God. What do you say? Amen? The people who even don't even deserve it. What do you say? Amen? We're told in the spirit of prophecy that even the bread we eat is stamped by the cross of Calvary. What do you say? Amen? Every fiber of our body. In other words, even the people who are wicked and evil and hate God, every fiber of their body owes it to the cross of Calvary and God's blessing, even though they hate God. What a God. What do you say? Amen? Amen. God blesses the good and the bad. And guess what? Not only does God bless the bad when they don't deserve it, not as a, I do something you know, for God and then He blesses me in response. No, He's actually blessing those who don't do anything good and He blesses the evil, right? The unjust. Not only that, but then there are times when we as Christians do good and then bad things happen to us for doing good. Is that not true? So to look at only blessings as a way to determine whether you're good or bad is not a good way to determine whether that is actually you're walking the right way or not. True? Yeah, amen? Amen. God blesses the good and the bad. Our motivation for serving God shouldn't be because we're going to get something from God. And our motivation for serving God shouldn't be because we may feel obligated to serving Him, but instead our motivation for serving God should be because we appreciate His character of love and all that He's done for us. And thus, out of a grateful heart that is free, not feeling obligated, but a heart that is free, we willingly, from a heart of a cheerful giver, want to give back to God. What do you say, amen? 
That is the gospel. Now, what did this officer then do? Notice what the Bible says here. Verse 27. What did the king do? The Bible says here, Then the master of the servant was moved with what? Compassion. Released him and what? Forgave him the debt. So, this king was moved with what? In other words, this king had a compassionate heart. What do you say? Amen? This king had a, a heart that was full of love, compassion, forgiveness, and is willing to offer all that. That's what this king had. In other words, this is reflective of our king in heaven. What do you say? Amen? Our king in heaven has a good heart, a compassionate heart, a loving heart, and he offers that to us also. And why is that so important to have a compassionate and a good heart to experience repentance? Because in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the Bible says that it is the goodness of God that leads us to what? Repentance. To seek God to forgive you. Forgiveness and goodness is directly connected. So in order to experience true forgiveness, you have to see that the one you're worshiping, the king, is actually good and compassionate. What do you say? Amen. Was this king compassionate? Yes, he was. But did his servant truly see that this king was compassionate? No, he didn't. Because he thought he wasn't receiving the full grace and love and compassion of the king. He thought he could still earn something and do something for his salvation, for his forgiveness that he was actually seeking. And that was he looking for. Okay, what happened next in, 28, in Matthew 18, 28? 230, you know what the Bible says here? But a servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And also he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you what? Oh, sound familiar? And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Now, this comes out to about a day's wages, 100 days' wages, comes to about $20,000. It's not a little. It's a pretty good-sized chunk. Spirit of Prophecy says that the ratio was about a million to one. So it comes about right. So about $20,000, you know, that's not a small chunk of change, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, look at it like, wow, I mean, that's something like, yeah, I could at least get a, a good down payment on a good car, right? Or even get a, you know, a small car, I could get paid much, the whole, pay off the whole car, right? How many here actually like to see $20,000? Let me see your hand there. <laughs> so he saw his friend, $20,000, 20 grand, and like, man, $20,000, he saw dollar signs in his eyes, right? So he went to him, but I want you to notice that he went to him, and what did he do? He begged, the guy begged him for forgiveness. What, didn't the words sound exactly the same that he had pleaded with the king? That give me time and I'll pay it all. But he grabbed him by his what? He actually was a physical abuser, right, to his fellow servant. So he was an abuser. This person was an abuser. He went out to hurt 
those around him. And he saw his fellow servant, and he started hurting him. Why was he an abuser? Because this servant became an abuser because he himself saw the king, even though the king was not an abuser, the king was compassionate and forgiving and full of mercy and love, right? But in his eyes, he had a false picture of who he saw the king was. He saw the king as an abuser. Somehow, yeah, right, you're saying that, but you're still requiring a favor for a favor, king. Therefore, I'm going to go out and pay you back all, right? That's what he was thinking in his mind. Even though the king said, I'm going to forgive you all, but in his mind, he believed that he still was going to go out, he's still going to get some uh, money, and he's going to pay back that favor for a favor, because nothing's free in this world, right? And so in his mind, even though it was not true, he saw that that king was an abuser. And isn't that true also today? Our God in heaven is not an abuser. What do you say? Amen? Amen. Our God is good. But people, even though people like to paint from the churches and the pastors and speakers, they like to paint a false picture of God. And with this false picture of God, people believe in and see that, well, the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament, right? But is the God of the Old Testament different from the God of the New? Then God say, I change not. What do you say? Amen? Philip had a problem with that 2,000 years ago, didn't he, right? Show us who the Father is, because the God, the Father of the Old Testament, is different from you, Jesus, you know, and the God of the New Testament, what I'm seeing. I mean, th- it doesn't make sense. They had the same problem back then. He said, show me the Father, because I, I don't know who he is. And Jesus had to say and rebuke him and say, look, I haven't I been here long enough with you, right? If you have seen me, you have what? You have seen the Father. What do you say, Amen. The character of the Father of the Old Testament is the same. The problem is not with God and God changing in the old and the new. The problem is with us as humans and, and our inability to understand God's Word. What do you say? Amen? And if we would only to see who God's character and see His righteousness, God would do a mighty work in our church. What do you say? Amen? A mighty work. He saw God was an abuser. In his own eyes, it's like today, people see God in the wrong way. They can't reconcile the text and everything. So they see God as an abuser. Why did they kill all these children and, and all these different nations and destroy them and with a sword? And why all these bad things happen and all these things, right? And so they can't reconcile. They see God as an abuser. And because they see God as an abuser, those who abuse always become an abuser unless they first experience healing. Let me say that again. Those who abuse by others... Always themselves become, the abuse always becomes an abuser unless they experience healing for themselves. That's why the sins are passed down to the what? Third and fourth generation, from one generation to the next, right? Unless there is healing. And I want to be healed tonight. What do you say, amen, and this whole weekend, amen? So he saw God as an abuser, right? He saw a different picture of God. And guess what happened? That's why this is the only reason why he then himself the abuser in his own mind, which wasn't true, then went out to become the abuser, and now he was abusing and physically abusing his fellow worker and choking him by his neck and then threw him into prison. Why? Because he was an abused person who had never experienced healing. And God wants to experience healing. What do you say? Amen? And many Christians today are spiritual abusers in the church psychological abusers 
as parents to the children. And I've seen it all. Emotional abusers to their friends, co-workers, their own husbands and wives and boyfriends and girlfriends because that's how they see God to be. That's how they see their parents to be, the representation of God to them. And thus the sins are passed down to the third and fourth generations as they now start a family and abuse their spouses and their children. But God can break that cycle because He's a compassionate God. What do you say? Amen? Amen? And He can do a mighty work in my life, in your life, if we just let Him. What happened next? 31 to 35. Notice the Bible says here, in Matthew chapter 18, the Bible says, So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told the master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called them, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to his torturers until he should pay all that he was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. What do you say? Amen? Amen? So when we talk to people, it's almost like we're saying, you know, I know you're angry at your mom, but you know, unless you forgive your mom, God's not going to forgive you. It's almost like we're putting a false picture like of God, like, you know, God's not going to forgive you because, you know, you got to do your part first. You do it first, and then God responds and forgives you for you doing your part and forgiving your mom. It's almost like we're painting a God that God expects you to do something on your own, initiate all on your own, and by doing that, we almost like we're unconsciously passed down this false tradition from generation to generation in our church, and we have unknowingly painted a false picture of who God is. And because we painted this false picture, people become angry at God. He asked me to do things that I can't even do. And they're going out like, I know I need to forgive, but I just cannot. You ever heard that before? I tried and tried. I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. How about seeing the story for what it really is? What do you say, Amen. It's almost like we're jumping into the story at the end of the story. And we're totally throwing out the whole text before, the whole beginning of the story. Because the story doesn't start with the king requiring a servant to forgive his fellow servant. It started way before the king had already forgiven him way back here. What did he say, amen? And then because he experienced it, he was only asking him to do what he had already experienced from his king. And God, in the same way, is only asking you to do what you have first experienced from God. What do you say? Amen? Amen. And that's what it says here, and I'm going to read it again, just so we kind of sink in. In Christ's Object Lessons, page 251. We are not forgiven because we forgive, but as we forgive. The ground of all forgiveness is found in the unmerited love of God. But by our attitude toward others, we show whether we have made that love our own. And the same way, we may have asked forgiveness from God, and we have been given forgiveness from God. But whether we have truly received it or not is revealed in how we treat one another. If that's clear, let me say amen. Amen? Amen. 
For we love and forgive someone, then that reveals that we have truly received God's love and forgiveness. But if we don't love and forgive someone, then that reveals that we have not received God's love and forgiveness. So in other words, to truly love and forgive others, we must first experience God's love and forgiveness toward us. What do you say? Amen? So now we understand how it works. So we love and forgive others is based upon experiencing God's love and forgiveness toward us. So with that understanding, let's now take a look at God's love and forgiveness toward you and me tonight. So turn to me to John chapter 19, verse 6 in your Bibles, please. John chapter 19, verse 6. Let's look at the love and forgiveness God has toward us so let's go especially to the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross. That's what we're going to be looking at. The Garden of Gethsemane and the cross. John chapter 19, verse 6. And what did the religious leaders want to do with Jesus? That's what the Bible says here. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, what? Crucify him. What? Crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. So what did the religious leaders want to do to Jesus? They want to what? Kill him, but specifically what? Crucify him. You see, the Romans had refined crucifixion and used it to execute runaway slaves and, and their worst criminals. Crucifixion was the most painful and shameful instrument of the Roman Empire, ever invented by man. It would take about three to seven days to die on the cross. Gangrene would set in, and the hands and the feet where the rusty nails had pierced. The pain would be excruciating as every joint of your body felt torn apart. Death ultimately would come in by suffocation. You could not exhale without raising your body up. And when you did, the pain was unbearable. In the shame of nakedness, you were exposed to the cold at night and to the heat at day. But what makes Christ's death the supreme sacrifice above all the other deaths? Because hasn't there been other martyrs who have died more worse deaths? And almost like people can say, you know, look, my martyr, you know, he, I worship him because, you know, he suffered a worse physical death than Jesus, Right? What makes Jesus' death so special then? What's so important about the cross anyway? So let's take a look. John chapter 19, verse 7. What was the reason why the Jews wanted Jesus to die? The Jews answered him saying, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the what? Son of God. So what is this when somebody makes himself God? What is that called? So why did the Jews want Jesus to die? Because of what? They're thinking that he was claiming to be God and was that law that he was breaking? The law of what? Blasphemy, right? Blasphemy, man making himself God. So they're upset at that. So, but according to the law, what was the punishment for blasphemy? Luke 24. Turn to Luke chapter 24, verse 16. Okay, so they want to crucify him, right? Luke 24, verse 16. Let's see what the Bible has to say. 
They want to crucify Jesus, right? And they're crying out what kind of way he, they want him to die. What are they saying? Crucify him, right? Okay, so but let's see. What was the law for blasphemy? And what did they say what he was doing? He was actually claiming to be the son of God or blasphemy. But let's see. What was the Levitical law here for actually claiming to be God? Luke chapter 24, verse 16. The Bible says, And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to what? Death. All the congregation shall certainly what? What does it say? Stone him. The stranger as well as him who is born in the land. Right? Sorry. <laughs> Leviticus 24 verse 16. Sorry. Okay, it's me. Okay, it's me. <laughs> hey, how come everyone's so silent? <laughs> okay, it's on me. It's on me. I'm sorry. <laughs> My bad. Thank you for correcting. Hey, that shows that you guys are paying attention. I was testing you, okay? He's passed the test, so this is a very good crowd, okay? He's a student of the word. Forgive me. The sermon is on forgiveness, right? <laughs> I'm trying to see, test you if you're actually willing to forgive me tonight. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Luke 24, verse 16. <laughs> right? <laughs> you with me, right? Everybody with me? <laughs> amen, amen. <laughs> so what's the punishment for the law for blasphemy? What was supposed to happen to Jesus? He was supposed to be what? Stone, right? Killed but stone, but and the Jews knew this because in John, don't have to turn there, but John 10 33, remember they pick up the stone and Jesus said, Why do you stone me? And say, For we're not gonna stone you, but for actually claiming it yourself as God, we want to stone you, right? So they knew it was stoning, but what did the Jews want? Instead of stoning, what did the Jews actually want? They wanted to have him what? Crucified, to be up there on the cross, up there on a tree, right? Now Why did the Jews want Jesus to be crucified on a tree rather than be stoned? That's the next question, right? Good question, right? So turn to me to Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 to 23. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 and 23. Pretty sure this is the right text this time. I double-checked. It's hard to see up here, that's why. <laughs> no excuses. I'm not <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 and 23. So the question is, why did the Jews want Jesus to be crucified on a tree rather than to be stoned, right? That's a good question, right? Because they were kind of going against the law. Notice the Bible says here. The Bible says, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a what? Tree. His body shall not remain overnight on a tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord the God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged, right, on a tree, is what? A curse, what? Of God. 
See, the law of blasphemy demanded that Jesus be stoned, but they didn't want Jesus just to be stoned. They wanted him to hang up on a tree because if he was to be hanging on a tree, then he would be what? Cursed of what? Of God. And then to the Jew, they knew that if you're cursed by God, then God cannot hear your prayers when you're cursed of God up there on the cross. And there's no hope of being forgiven at all. Because then God can't hear your prayers. You cannot be forgiven on the cross. And not only that, but then that curse will fall upon him. There's no hope. In other words, there's no hope of his resurrection or anything like that for him. He was cursed of God. And the apostles knew that too. That's why, turn to me to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 in your Bibles. The Jews hated Jesus more than you know. Just for him to die was not enough to, for them. They wanted him to go beyond. They wanted him to be accursed of God. Now what did Paul say about being hung on a tree? Notice here in Galatians chapter 3, which is righteousness by faith chapter, by the way. Christ our righteousness chapter, one of them. Romans and Galatians. And the Bible says here, um, first of all, in verse 10, it says, Curses everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So if we don't obey God's commandments, then all of us who don't obey God's commandments are what? Cursed by God, right? But I want you to notice what happened in verse 13. The Bible says here, Christ has redeemed us or saved us from the what? Curse of the what? The law for not obeying it. God has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a what? Curse for us. So Christ became a curse for us. How did that happen? For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs what? On a tree. Specific wording as used in Deuteronomy. Paul knew that. And the very thing that the Jews wanted, they didn't want Jesus just to die. They didn't just want him to be stoned. They wanted Jesus to be cursed by God. And the very thing they wanted because of their hatred and anger at Jesus, the very thing that they wanted was the very thing, the very curse they wanted for Jesus on the cross that he experienced was the very thing that actually saved them. And they didn't even know it. Amen. They didn't even know it. And that's the love and forgiveness God has for you and me. What do you say? Amen? Amen. But it doesn't end there. Turn to Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. There are two different types of death. And let's see in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, the two different types of death. Notice the Bible says here. Jesus is speaking here. So Jesus defines to two different types of deaths. Matthew 10, verse 28. The Bible says, Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the what? Body. Okay, so that's one type of death. Don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the what? Soul. That's another type of death, the soul death. And then it says here, But rather, fear him was able to destroy both Soul and body in what? Hell. 
So Jesus is talking about the two deaths. Okay, look, if you die the death of the body, he's saying this was called the first death, right? You heard of the first death, right? In the Bible, it talks about that. And then we know in Revelation chapter 20, there's actually something called the very good second death, right? Which is actually the soul death. So the first death or the, the body death, when does that happen? Before the thousand years or after the thousand years? Okay, okay, before. The body death, right, happens right before, right? And then the, the soul death, when does that happen? Before the thousand years or after the thousand years? Okay, right, after, right? The soul dies, right? So that's when the final destruction of the wicked and separation and everything, right? So that's the first and second death. Okay, so has any man died the second death yet? Okay, okay, good. So let's turn to Matthew 26. Yeah, Matthew 26, verse 38. Matthew 26. You guys got me scared because I'm like double-checking my text. And <laughs> Matthew 26, verse 38. Matthew 26, verse 38. Now I want you to notice 26, verse 38. Eight. Has anyone died the second death? Notice the Bible says here, starting in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then he said to them, Jesus said, My body is exceedingly sorrow even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Is that what it says? What did Jesus say? My soul. Don't fear the death of the body, the first death. Just fear of losing your eternal salvation, eternal life forever, and the death of your soul. Fear of being, not just being stoned and dying, fear of being hanging on a tree and receiving the eternal curse of God and eternal death. The eternal second death of the wages of sin is soul death, eternal death. So has any man died a second death? Jesus, the Son of Man, might I add? What do you say? Amen? Amen. That's what he did for you and me. But it doesn't stop there. What did Jesus cry on the cross? Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. This is the next chapter over. Matthew 27, verse 46. What did Jesus cry on the cross? The Bible says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why have you, what? Forsaken me. What's another word, forsaken? Abandoned me. Why have you left me, right? Why have you separated yourself from me, right? In other words, Jesus was up on the cross, and do you think Jesus was actually acting on the cross? Think Jesus was the actor? Think Jesus was into drama? <laughs> yeah, like young people like drama. <laughs> but do you think he was actually acting? People make it seem like he was, but do you think he really believed that he was actually separated from his father? Yes, he was. And there was up there on the cross, Jesus really believed that his father had abandoned him, that his father had separated himself from him, that he was forsaken by his father separation from his the one whom he loved and the one whom his father had also loved was his son and jesus was up there on the cross 
and he felt separated. You know, look at your handout. The father was there, but do you think that Jesus felt it when that the father was there? No, he wasn't faking it. He wasn't pretending it. Look at your first hand on the story of Jesus, page 104. This was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says that he had lost the presence of his father. It goes on there to the next one in Desire for Ages, 753. It says the father was with his son, yet his presence was what? Not revealed. And in that dreadful hour, Christ was not to be comforted with the father's presence. In other words, can you imagine? From way past in eternity ages, he had always been with his father. From way back to eternity ages, the father had always been with his son. They had always spent time together. They had loved each other. They had had joy together and fellowship and meals together. They had everything together. And then a rebellious world came along and they made the plan of salvation. And yes, they were separated for the time when Jesus came to this earth. And they felt that pain, but it was like, almost like a joy of having a, a child of again. And that was his son. And was, I've seen him been raised in Nazareth. And then the time came for his mission. And when he was 30 years old, and the years went by, and they knew that separation was coming. And then 33 and a half, that separation came. And now he's, the father was there, but he couldn't reveal his presence to his son. And the son was there on the cross, and he felt so overwhelmed by the sins of the world, overwhelmed by the curse of that sin, or Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, that overwhelming the curse and the, the exact thing that the Jewish leaders wanted for Jesus, they had gotten. And now he was up there on a tree, cursed by God, and God the Father could not reveal his presence to his son. And there on the cross, he was up there, Dying all alone. You know, in John 16, 32, before that time, right? He said, my father is always with me. He has never left me. He loves me. Jesus was always confident that his father was always with him. And now for the first time, he said, father, why have you left me and abandoned me? Where are you? Where is your presence? That was a cry of Jesus' heart on the cross of Calvary, questioning God why he was abandoning him. That his father didn't love him anymore. Why had he left him all alone? What had gone wrong with the plan that we had together? It was a very sad feeling to die all alone. To know that you're dying and while you're dying all by yourself, no one is there near you that's dear to you. It's a sad feeling to die all alone when no one's there by your side. In one of my towns where I once used a pastor, there was a man who had family in the very same town and he passed away and he died. And he was dead a whole week before he was found. It's a sad thing to be there and to know that you're lying, that you're taking your last breaths and you're breathing. You know that your time is near and you're 
And to be knowing that your, your wife didn't make it in time, or your husband didn't make it, or maybe your children weren't there, or maybe your parents didn't make it somehow in an auto accident, and you're all alone and no one was there, and to die all alone, there's something about dying all alone. And Jesus felt like he was dying all alone. Everyone had abandoned him. And the one true friend, the one whom he truly loved, and the one who he had always been with from eternity ages past, his own father, he thought wasn't even there. Can you imagine the pain he must have felt? Not only that, but look at the, from the handout. Testimonies to the Church, Volume 2, page 209. Notice what it says here. Even doubts assailed the dying Son of God. He could not see through the what? Portals of the tomb. In other words, he couldn't see that he was going to be resurrected again. He thought this was it. He was going to die the second death. But he didn't see a resurrection from the second death. You know, when we die here as Christians, we have that faith in Christ that we are going to be what? Resurrected again. We have that faith. We are going to be resurrected. And that's just the first death. But Jesus was here. He was struggling. And he said he couldn't see past the portals of the tomb. He couldn't see. It. He saw no hope in all of this. It says, bright hope did not present to him his coming forth from the tomb a conqueror. He didn't have the hope that he was going to be resurrected. And his father's acceptance of his sacrifice, even afterwards, right, we know that he had to say, don't touch me yet, right, Mary? I still haven't ascended to my father, right? And inspiration says that he wanted to present and make sure that his sacrifice was accepted by his father before he came down. The sin of the world with all its terribleness was felt to the utmost by the Son of God the displeasure of the Father for sin and its penalty, which is death, were all that he could realize through this amazing darkness. He was tempted to fear that sin was so offensive in the sight of his Father that he could not be reconciled to his Son. The fierce temptation that his own Father forever left him caused that piercing cry from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he did that for you. What do you say? Amen? Amen. The sins of the world was placed upon Christ, was it not? Right on the cross? As he was there on the cross, the Bible says in Isaiah 59 verse 2, our sins have what? Separate ourselves from God. So because of the sins were placed upon Jesus on the cross of Calvary, he felt separated from God, his Father. And because of that separation, he made that cry, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the end for him. Goodbye, Father. Goodbye, angels. Goodbye, universe. Goodbye, humanity. I love you. I'm going to miss being with you. I don't want to be separated from my Father who have never been separated. He loves me and I love him. But if this is the only way for humanity to be saved, then so be it. What a God. What do you say? Amen? Amen. I'd rather die and not exist so that you would be saved. 
For I couldn't live a day in my father's presence and father's love all the while knowing that you, every single one of you sitting here and everyone that's listening would be lost forever. In other words, at the cross, Jesus showed to you and me that he loves you more than he loves himself. What do you say? Amen? And was in the midst of these conflicting thoughts that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we know that in the end, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. What do you say? Amen? Amen. In other words, Jesus' faith on the cross faltered, but it did not fail. What do you say? Amen? Amen? And in the end, he came out of victorious faith, and I praise God for that. What do you say? Amen? Amen. What came out of Jesus after he was pierced with a spear? Turn to John chapter 19, verse 34. John 19, verse 34. What came out of Jesus after he was pierced with the spear? Notice what it says here. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately, what came out? Blood and water. It has been said that blood and water came out of Jesus because, and I'm going to explain to you what it says, of the collapse of the ruptured heart cavity, resulting in the separation of the watery serum from the clotted blood in the pericardium. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> in other words, Jesus died of a broken heart. There's actually a term for this today. It's called Takatsubo cardiomyopathy, which is called broken heart syndrome. The true medical term. And you know in Desire of Ages, page 772 in your handout, Ellen White says, Jesus, he died of a broken heart. He died of a broken heart. Song of Solomon 8 verse 6 says that love is as strong as death. In other words, the love between the father's heart and the son's heart was so strong that when it was severed by our sins, it literally broke the suffering heart of God. What a God. What do you say, amen? amen. When he saw that on the cross, that he was being separated, and don't think it was only him, but the father himself was hurting because his son was being separated from him and was crying out, Father, where are you? What if there was a disease? This is a parable. Similitude. What if there was a disease going around this world that was wiping out people by the millions? City by city would be wiped out. And, you know, this disease that started off in Japan. And then they jumped to China. And from China, it jumped to Hawaii. Then Hawaii jumped to California. And it was here. And then a public service announcement goes out, and it says that they found a cure. But all they need in this cure is that they need to find the correct blood match. There's got to be someone out there that has a correct blood match, because then we can duplicate the cure and save possibly 
whole cities and possibly the whole world. And so they ask you to go down and go down to your local hospital and stand in line there. They're going to test your blood type to see if you're a match and then maybe you could actually be used to help save the world. So you go down with your son. You stand in line. It's a long line as you're waiting. It's a hot day, thirsty, and just waiting. And finally, you're getting closer. Hours go by. And finally, you come to the place where they're going to draw blood from you and your son. And they draw blood from you and and your son. And they say, okay, we want you to wait. We want you to stay for at least an hour until we get the results back. Please don't go home. So as they were waiting, they were drawing the blood and you were waiting and it's been an hour. Say, so, oh, it's been an hour. So you get up and you kind of walk out and you're ready to walk out the door. And as you just about to walk out the door, there comes out a man screaming. <laughs> and he's the doctor screaming, we have a match. We have a match. We found someone with the correct blood type. And everyone's in the room and screaming for joy and excited. Yeah, found a match cheering and then they go out and call the name of your son and everyone's more screaming and everyone's applauding him and everyone's so excited and you're excited for him because actually your son's going to help on saving the world and you're so excited that that's actually going to happen and your son's going to play a big part so they pull you apart into a separate room and they're talking with you and this time the doctor comes back with a clipboard with a release form from the United States government and hands it to you. This time he's not too excited as he once was a moment ago. And as you're filling out the report and you're going through and you're filling out the whole thing and you come to a place talking about taking the blood of your son and it doesn't say how much. And so you ask the doctor, how much blood do you need? And the doctor responds, we're going to need all of it. We're going to need all of it. You explain that to your son and you're all alone in the room all together, explaining him what's going to happen. And he said, Dad, I still want to do it because if I give all my blood, that means, Daddy, you're going to live. And mommy's going to live. And my little sister, my baby sister Annie, she's going to live. They're all going to live. And I want to do this so you all can live. And so they are put him on the gurney and they're escorting him away and they hook him up and withdrawing his blood. And at the last moment, he looks to you and he cries out to you. He says, Daddy, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. And you cry out to him as his life slowly leaves him. I will never leave you. I will never leave you. And this story but faintly reveals the love that God has for you and me. That he, the Father, would be willing to give of his only son to die for a world that did not love him. What love. 
What amazing love. God loves you tonight. And he wants you to see how much he, he loves you. Jesus, the Son of God, suffered the pain of believing that his Father had abandoned him on the cross. He suffered the agony that he would never see his Father again. A Father whom he loved so much. And all of this for people who were murdering him. God the Father also suffered on the cross. Don't you think there was only the Son that suffered on the cross? But God the Father also suffered on the cross of Calvary. He too struggled with giving up his one and only son with whom he loved. How could he give up his son, especially for a world that did not love him? How could he be separated from his son? How could he know in the future that he would be right by his son's side and his own son was crying out to him, my, my father, my God. In fact, you know, in the whole Bible, when Jesus was talking, he always talked about his father as my father as an intimacy. But there's only one time in the whole Bible where Jesus actually refers to his Father as a distant person, as my God. Because there's a loss of intimacy there. And to know that, you know, there's going to come a point where his son would be crying out and feel like he abandoned, like his own dad had abandoned, his own father had abandoned him, and he felt, you know, if you've been abandoned as a child, know that Jesus understands. What do you say, Amen. And Jesus is up there on the cross and the pain of the father knowing that he wanted to be there for his son and he couldn't because they both knew that they loved you enough to go through all of that just so that you and I have a chance to be saved. What a God, amen? And it's when we receive this love and forgiveness, we didn't just go out and give to others the same love and forgiveness what we have experienced at the cross of Calvary. What do you say? Amen? Amen. Then it becomes easy. But we must go to the cross. What do you say? Amen? Amen. Tonight I'm going to be making an appeal. Kathleen is going to be singing. And as Kathleen sings this song, it's called Come As You Are. She comes up, I'm going to share her, what the words say. It says, come out of sadness from wherever you've been. Come broken hearted. Let rescue begin. Come find your mercy O sinner, come kneel. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can heal. So lay down your burdens. Lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. O wanderer, come home. You're not too far. So lay down your hurt. Lay down your heart. Come as you are. Tonight I'm going to make an appeal. And I guess it's an appeal to start off the weekend.
God wants to do something with your heart this week, and I really believe that in my heart. What do you say, amen? And it may not be what you may be expecting, but God wants to do something. So maybe there's somebody here that would like to just say, Lord, here I am. I don't know what you want to do with me this weekend, but I want you to do something different because I know I want something different in my life. I want to experience your love fully. What do you say, amen? Say, Lord, I, wanna, I want this. I invite you to come forward. Come forward to the front if you want to make that appeal and say, God, here, take me for I am. Come. And say, Lord, here, I want to experience this. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.